Today we are joined by Latifa Arkay and Emily Mason from Maslaha. Maslaha seeks to change and challenge the conditions that create inequalities for Muslim and other marginalised communities in areas such as education, gender, criminal justice, health, negative media coverage and a continued climate of structural racism and Islamophobia. Latifa is Director of Education at Maslaha. She founded Maslaha's Schools with Roots programme and is currently co-directing a multi-arts festival of Muslim creativity and knowledge, MFest. Maslaha will be launching MFest online in partnership with the British Library at the end of May. The festival explores how we reclaim and recontextualise the diverse histories and stories that represent Muslim communities. Latifa has an academic background in law and previously worked in journalism in Istanbul. Emily is a senior project manager at Maslaha, working on schools with roots. She recently produced the documentary film Nobody's Metaphor, which follows the experience of a group of year eight and nine students in Maslaha's Muslim Girls Fence project. Previously, Emily worked as a historian with a specific interest in civil society and grassroots activism, as a visiting researcher at the London School of Economics European Institute and teaching modern British history at King's College London and the University of East London. Today, we're going to be talking with Latifa and Emily about Maslaha's Schools with Roots project. So welcome, Emily and Latifa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I wanted to start off by asking um, you, if you can tell us a bit about the Maslaha Schools with Roots project. Yes, absolutely, Jules. And thank you so much for having us on the show. We're excited to be here. Um, so Schools with Roots is... Um, is a programme that we run at Maslaha to support primary schools to develop um, sustainable and anti-racist practice around engaging with their families and their school, their wider community around school. Um, so we started up Schools with Roots about four years ago and we, we were excited by the opportunity to kind of bring in a lot of our existing education work at Maslaha, thinking about um, how you can, the, the prospects for Muslim kids for young black and brown kids to flourish at school to have the opportunity mm -hmm. to thrive and to to work to understand how some of the issues that we know exist in schools um, in terms of structural racism could be meaningfully kind of worked around um, and we we had the opportunity about four years ago to specifically um, work with primary schools around how they engage with their local communities. Um, and we started that off with a bit of action research, which was really interesting um, with a few schools in, so a school in Bradford, a school in Peterborough and a school in Newham in East London. Um, and through that action research, you know, a lot of the, a lot of different, and when I say action research, I should clarify, it was a year long and um, which was really nice. And, and for us, that was a, that was important because it allowed us to really, um, to kind of really get to know the, the school communities we were working with from, um, you know, the children, parents, um, TAs, the, um, you know, the, the, maybe the, the people who are working on the, I don't know, garden, the all, so that kind of wide range of engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and we we basically um we we did some overarching creative projects looking at um a couple of them were on stories from home others were around food but we were looking at at subjects that tapped into existing school topics as well as um themes that we were interested in looking at and also with food we had the scope there to kind of engage families really widely and um to kind of look at think through notions of kind of embodied knowledge and um and 
really kind of turn turn on its head the idea of who might be an expert um, and what expertise actually means. Um, and that was really interesting. And through that, different kind of questions came up. And we, you know, some of those were things like, um, you know, parents really wanting to engage at school, but feeling that they didn't know how to do that. And um, parents feeling like they didn't actually have anything to share at school. I remember one of the one of the parents we worked with who did who then did become quite involved. She said initially, um, I didn't I used to think I had nothing to offer at school. Um, and also then a sense of from from some families, a sense of not trusting um, school, not, not feeling like they would be for a number of reasons, feeling fearful and um, having been judged before personally or having seen other people that they knew being judged at school. And we saw, we, you know, saw issues like um, a school we'd worked with where one particular staff member, it felt like there was an element of gatekeeping and that was putting other parents off engaging. And also things like PTA politics, where maybe there'd be some really engaged parents in the PTA and then um, they became somehow the kind of voice of the whole of all the families at school, um, and then yeah, on top of that, also just um, we we saw, for example, that we we co-delivered some projects with um, with uh, different year groups in the primary schools we worked with, and we and those went really really well. But it was but questions came up around for teachers: how would I have the time to do this in normal teaching? How would feeling maybe that they didn't have the expertise to engage around particular things? Um, in a couple of instances, um, a few teachers said actually that they f following these projects that they felt really that. They, they actually felt really nervous about working with parents because they'd never had training around working with adults. They worked with kids, um, which, was, which seems really simple, but actually was, is quite a big issue. And I suppose that leads then into, you know, a couple of years ago, there was um, the EEF did some research around parental involvement in schools. And in that, it was mentioned that less than 10% of teachers have had any kind of professional development around community engagement and that many schools don't have any kind of explicit plan. Um, and you know we know and you know you'll both know in, in terms of um, research showing that actually parental involvement and family engagement can will always have the scope to have a really positive impact on educational outcomes for young people and um, but that actually that maybe wasn't really being tapped into at all so we um, so then we basically that was a point where we'd been exploring different tools and um, with schools with roots and the schools we worked with we co-created those tools with the schools we work with um, and that we were in a position to really shape um, different strategies that we could offer up to schools um, and essentially what we one important element of how we work is that we um, we 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 don't have a kind of generic approach that we take and we always want to work together with the school in its very particular context to understand what that what a strategy to um, work around some of those questions might actually be listening to you talk about that one of the things that I was it, it really makes me think about that, that we know, but I think we need to remind ourselves again and again about the, how multi-layered a school community is, that it isn't just the building that, that stands in the street, that, you know, but, it, but, but all of the, the different roles that are within that and then, and then how it sits within the wider community and those relationships and the families and the homes and the, it's such a, um, a complex place isn't it as well um, with so many different people within it um, and obviously right at the heart of that are the children always um, 
So thank you. That's that's a, a wonderful um, introduction to to the work that you've been doing. Oh, it- you, you touched on so much in that answer and I think we're going to revisit some of it in the other questions but I just wanted to bring it back to um, the thing the things you said about you know uh, teachers not having that kind of expertise or training in uh, working with adults is so interesting and not and I think it's not something that's really brought to light very often you know I, I only stopped being a teacher quite recently and you know um, can definitely attest to that feeling of it being very different when you work with parents as to when you work with children you feel I felt infinitely more confident in front of I could do assemblies in front of 400 children and not be phased and then I could have I could have a couple of parents in my class and it would be really it really play on my mind you know it's it's a different ball game I think Jules you'll you, you know you, you probably experienced the same thing it is absolutely it's very it's a very different feel but as you say it's just it's it's infinitely important that 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 it's all involved in the same in the same aspect but it does require that kind of a different kind of training and a different kind of skill set and for teachers so it is it's a whole different ball game really isn't it totally yeah and i think it you know it's it's interesting because i think we we had this and something maybe i didn't mention was that you know we had a it was apparent to us actually that when we were thinking about how that when we were shaping our strategies around engaging with families and local communities that actually a really important precursor to all of that work would have to be um, having the schools having really grappled with how they were around institutional racism and around how their approaches might be anti-racist which is something i mentioned right at the start um, because actually if that if that kind of understanding if that intention and if that kind of um, acknowledgement wasn't there that 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 the work just wouldn't be it would be lip service and it would be superficial um, and that was that was a really kind of important for us it's a really important part of the work that we do um, and while of course while there's so many interventions that need to happen when we're talking about anti-racist approaches to to um, in schooling that is that's a kind of as you're saying both of you it's a, it's almost like a slightly overlooked area um that is that for all sorts of reasons including um really low capacity at schools and to everyone being so overworked and mm-hmm. um and uh gov- you know cuts to school budgets and everything else but it is a particular area that it feels like it's almost been neglected mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that kind of just brings on to our second question so so uh, what's the impact of today's uh, sort of eurocentric curriculum and how do culturally responsive classrooms work to support sort of children and families in that kind of area yeah um this is me again okay, yeah, go for it. and emily will speak um but yeah so yeah it's a it's a big question i suppose in ways it's almost so the impact of a Eurocentric curriculum, and I, th- I think the interesting, or not the interesting thing, but you know, fundamentally, just that that can't be underestimated, the impact that a Eurocentric curriculum has on, on children, on every single child in the education system, but also the society that we live in. Um, and I think that, you know, the last few years have really brought into sharp focus um, how the fact that actually there ha- there just hasn't if we're talking about a british context that there just hasn't been enough government will to actually acknowledge the ways all of the ways that school impacts and is part of that 
um, trajectory that leads to the racism that we see all around us in society today. Um, and there's a really great Adrienne Rich quote that I always think about on, and um, when thinking about Eurocentric curriculum, which is, um, she, she says, I've got it somewhere here, but um, yeah, when someone with the authority of a teacher describes a world and you're not in it, there's a moment of psychic disequilibrium as if you looked in the mirror and saw nothing. And it's almost that kind of sense of if you, if you go through the school system and you never see your existence or your experiences or your, um, yeah, what you know to be truth reflected back at you, then ultimately you, you, it kind of enforces a fragmentation of identity, of experiences, mm -hmm. and also it, it unfortunately fosters a sense of, um, yeah, a sense of, you know, at worst superiority and racism, but people come out of a, um, school feel without any kind of grappling about, um, about you know, what, what whiteness is, about British history. Um, and especially, I think, you know, there is, you know, there really is a huge kind of amnesia um, around history and a huge issue around history in, in schools in England, in Britain, um, around not kind of grappling with, with Britain's racist past and how that then means that actually people are going into society with no kind of notion of how, um, of, of, yeah, essentially of all of the dynamics that have led to what is what is manifesting around us um, and yeah it's it's really scary when you think about it and you know we you know we were thinking you know last year I think there was a couple of pivotal moments um, I remember after at the kind of height of some of the resurgence around Black Lives Matter and um, a group called the Black Curriculum had asked to meet with Gavin Williams and the education secretary to talk about making black history mandatory and that was rejected by the government and it's little things like that that just mm. you just wonder what is where where is the government will on this um, and yeah, and, and then, you know, little things like when we talk about, again, going back to the question, the impact of Eurocentric curriculum, you know, we saw, we've seen in the past couple of um, years, the kind of the really tragic death of Shukri Abdi and of Christopher Capessa, two young black children who, who both drowned to death um, because their experiences of being bullied in school weren't taken seriously. And because there, because there was, uh, unfortunately, around them, racism was kind of allowed to flourish in that environment and that wasn't you know Shukri Abdi's mum has talked about how she had brought up countlessly countless times the, the racism that her daughter was experiencing but the school hadn't done anything so then that would lead you to ask well where is you know what kind of anti-bullying where was the anti-bullying policy in that school where was the anti-racist mm -hmm. kind of lens on that so when we talk about um the, the elements of structural um, racism in schools, that kind of, and the policy element of that, that's like one example where you see, you know, an anti-race, an anti-bullying policy. And if that, why wasn't that picked up? Why was no action taken on that? Um, and then similarly in the, in the case of Christopher Capessa, where, where um, the, you know, there was a court ruling very recently and the, only this month, you know, that um, his family have been campaigning because I've got the quote here, but, and the Crown Prosecution Service said that it, it wasn't in the public interest to pursue a prosecution due to the age of the suspect, their maturity and their good school record, which is just really shocking when you think about, you know, in that instance, what what does public interest mean and what, what does this, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the maturity and the good school record of the boy who pushed him into the river, you know, so all of those elements of mm -hmm. 
when, when we talk about Eurocentric curriculum, you know, all of that really being relevant. And, and, and unfortunately, when we talk about the impact of that, those, those two tragic deaths are part of that, as is then all the experiences um, of young kids of colour in school um, who, come, who come out of that system, you know, with just simply not having had the same opportunity to thrive. And, you know, as their peers and yeah, mm. so all of that has kind of been part of that picture. Mm. Thank you. And it's making me think as well of um, the way that that um, teachers and staff members in the school need to reflect on their place in that and where they sit within that structural racism as well. And that can be very difficult. And, and uncomfortable to do, which probably Emily leaves, leaves, leads us a bit on to the next question. So I'm going to ask the next question, which is, can you tell us about the kind of training schools with Roots offers for school staff around power and privilege and how these are reflected in schools? Yeah, yeah. So, well, it really just builds on what Latifa was just saying, because this is anti-racist training. It's And, and we're looking really at racism as a structure um, and working with teachers to understand it in that way so that it's not really about as to how to discard individual narratives and stop seeing racism because you know many most white people all white people see racism as a, a essentially as like an, an immoral act you know rather than um a structure and therefore it's really hard to see yourself or your school as racist and if you see it in that light then you'll then we won't you can't really move forward so I kind of our main our sort of essential first focus is is on that is understanding racism as a structure rather than um an event if you like um and so within that we ask teachers to consider their own positionality um their own privilege um and we look at how um racism and power and privilege manifest both in society and also in schools and in schools that relates to what Latifa was just saying and it's things like um, uniform policies, exclusion policies, um, anti-bullying policies, Eurocentric curriculum, all of these things. Um, so we look at that and then we consider in terms of the sort of power and privilege how might how school might be intimidating for for families and that could be people having parents having had negative experiences of school when they were children or um, negative experiences of other um, UK institutions like the police. Um, it could be how language barriers play out if, if English isn't your first language. Um, what happens if you've got um, an all-white leadership team in your school that's serving your local community and that's and it's a community made up of people of colour. Um, so we're looking at all of these kind of things and then ultimately we sort of pull that out into pra practical tools and I think later in the in the podcast we're going to talk a bit more about those but um, practical things that that can be done to engage with parents and carers and families but through this anti-racist lens which is acknowledging the power and privilege that exists regardless of any individual intentions and also recognising the... Um, the knowledge the, um, and, and learning from that knowledge that exists within the communities that you serve that's already there. It's so interesting isn't it just I think just from a again just from like so of a teacher point of view it's really easy on your day-to-day -to, -day to think you know I've got yeah I've got an open door policy and I'm really approachable and parents should be you know fine just coming up and asking me and making those links but actually 
God, there's so there's so many different perspectives and really when you sit down and you look at it through a different lens like that kind of lens you have to you have to really reflect on a lot more than just saying you can come and see me whenever you want to a parent it's just it's just so much more than that for all these different different people um it's just it's really interesting bringing that to light i think um which which does actually lead us lovely nice on to our next question which is just generally why is it so important to engage families and communities in learning what 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 are the what are the reasons why it's important and um, i suppose it's building on what we've maybe already chatted about but just that sense of um acknowledging that the the kind of the positive the benefits of having of having um families feel feeling that they can engage at school um, and thinking about if, if families don't feel they can engage at school what are they losing out on so you know they're losing out on being able to feel a sense of community feel a sense of belonging but also understanding how they can support their child's learning feeling like they can and um, feeling like they have i suppose that they're able in some way to input into that and to kind of to be on that journey um, and through some of the work that we you know we do with schools we see how actually parents love to be able to, to know what their child's going to be learning about to know what's coming up to have ideas about how they can um, be involved in that journey at home um, and yeah and really so when parents don't have that essentially it's a loss for it it really been a loss for the child which goes back to what you were saying to start Jules in terms of children the, the, that direct stepping stone between parents and children and children's well-being and educational outcomes really needing to be there I suppose mm. and, it, and it definitely has a, a really marked effect on on children you know I've, I've heard from children that I've taught in the past that when they have when they have um, parents you know this this is just sort of a very concrete example but come in for like a morning and and do like a session that I've been running obviously they're they're always delighted to have them there and things like that but you can see um you can tell that when when they know they have this kind of strong link at school and at home then they have this kind of support network which stretches across both facets of their lives you know the two main facets at that age you kind of school at home aren't they so and when they have that kind of interconnectedness between the support networks it's beneficial for everyone involved teacher child parent you know you see it time and time again i think jules i think i just nearly interrupted you then it looked like you were about to say something no no not at all and actually i was going to i was i was reflecting on something very similar so that's perfect you okay. kind of covered that thought that i had i was also thinking about how how big that gap can be between school and home and families and community and it can be so much bigger perhaps than and the school itself realizes even sometimes you know it can just be huge and 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 finding ways to to cross that gap and, and join it together and bridge it and all these phrases that we use all the time um can be such a challenge and 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 really needs reflection all the time i think doesn't it um i know our next question is about is about how you can do that and um, it's how do the schools you have worked with connect with families in their community and in what ways do they invite them into the schools because I know you've done a lot of work on not just having one way or one point of contact but as such a variety so that that can um, reach out and speak to in different ways basically 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, as Latifah was saying earlier as well, the way we work is we'll work with individual schools and different issues, obviously no like school or community is the same and, mm. and different issues arise. So it we have a very kind of local tailored response in, in that sense. But two, um, I'm just going to give an example of basically two sort of practices that we, we mm. use with schools. And one of those, and Latifah can probably, might, you might want to add in to this as well, but one of those is, is called community mapping. And that is about inviting parents um, into the school um, and basically to kind of build up a, a sort of layered picture of, of the local area and what, what the local area means to, to local families so that teachers then can also kind of understand more about the lives and the everyday lives and experiences and, and interests and routines um, of their pupils. And parents can get to know, obviously, the school, one another, share their local knowledge their expertise which often they don't necessarily view as expertise but is expertise and it's also about recognizing it as as such um and kind of mobilizing parents really to get involved in the school and that could be for example you know it's called community mapping so you think well like a physical map and it might be a physical map but latifah worked with a school this is before i joined the project but she worked with a school in in newham um and it, what, what came out of her, um, those workshops with, the, with Latifah and the, um, the school and the families was um, a zine called, I don't, what is it called? Our Forest Gate Stories? Is that right, Latifah? It was Journeys to Forest Gate. Journeys but to Forest Gate. Ones about right, yeah. <laughs> and it was about, um, and, and it was really a, it was a kind of zine with, with stories, people's life stories about their journeys of how they'd kind of come to, to live in Forest Gate. So it, it could be, um, a physical map it could be a zine it might be an audio piece it could or it could just it could be a collage that's on the wall you know it could be there's all sorts of things and it, it that will emerge through working um with with the parents and then the other another um, thing that we do a practice that we have is called topics together and that's really about inviting parents into the classroom to talk with the teachers about what the, the topics are going to be for that term and for the teachers to introduce those topics to the parents but it's really an, as a knowledge sharing exercise so it's about parents sharing their knowledge inputting into that and a, um, a big kind of emphasis there is on creating a sort of non-judgmental non-hierarchical environment so that parents are they are it's not about a sort of session for teachers to tell parents about what the kids will be studying it's a it's a, like I say a kind of knowledge sharing experience and we so and a lot of thought has to go into that as well because you know and again it's things we've touched on but it's even really simple things like how have you set your classroom up are you you know not standing at the front of the classroom talking to parents as if they were kind of a group of, of kids even you know it's about maybe you know you might have do you get parents to, to sort of talk among in smaller groups, talking to each other and the teacher moving around the room and joining those conversations, thinking about language barriers, how you encourage parents to, to contribute so that they feel um, able to contribute. And so there's a lot, we do a lot of work on that about how to create a non-judgmental, non-hierarchical space so that that knowledge sharing can, can take place. I don't know, do you want to add anything, Tifa, about topics together? No, um, no, I think that's great, Emily. And I suppose it's, I think it's the, I think it's the, as you were saying, it was that the, a big question for us was really the non-hierarchical, how can we actually create a non-hierarchical environment? And we, we keep putting that out and we kept putting that out to the staff we were working with on that. And it was, you know, as a kind of collective um, work problem solving um, and an ongoing question, because 
you know, like Emily was saying, and in terms of if we're thinking about uh, around power and privilege, if we're thinking about the fact that actually there is this massive power imbalance with schools as an institution and, and communities, that thinking through has to be applied to every single environment that's created. And um, yeah, and that's something that we just, we see, we really don't see that we've got an answer on, but that it has to be, but that it's just an ongoing thinking through process um, about how environments like that can be shaped. Um, yeah, so that was, and yeah, and just that in topics together, I think really families really valued that process. Um, and also that it came, interestingly, it, we, we started that up, we started trialling that because parents had said that they were, um, sorry, teachers had said that they were really keen to get parents' expertise into their topics, but they didn't know how that could happen in a way that wasn't really overwhelming. So teachers had mentioned, you know, just what you were saying, Jack, when a few parents are in the classroom, it can, it almost felt like they were having to maybe manage those parents as well as a class or they, you know, they weren't sure how to, it just kind of changed the dynamic. So it was basically a way of teachers being able to scope what are the interests of parents, what are the skills among this parents group who might be really interested in this topic? For example, one of the one of the topics in one of the first topics together, it was a year four topic called um, it was around basically architecture in London. And it so happened that there was um, a mum um, in that year group who who did a lot of junk modelling um, in, a, in a kind of separately as her own kind of creative creative practice so she was like a really great asset to that process and similarly there were other topics where a parent had you know came was working in a particular profession where they could really input so that was it came we I suppose we we moved into that directly from feedback from teachers around what they the kind of the kind of engagement with families that they really wanted um, and that they yeah and followed their lead on that and we had to really it was great to have the um you know, we worked with a school in Newham, Sandringham Primary School, and they they were amazing. You know, they basically every we tried that with every single year group um, in the school, and there was really great attendance across each year group, which was brilliant. It's it's amazing. I don't know. I'm hearing it. I'm just reflecting on like you know how many missed opportunities do I think I you know I passed by as a teacher not having that kind of not doing that kind of thing. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're thinking the same thing, Jules. It's like maybe maybe we just didn't know about, you know, this amazing resource that this parent had. Um, yeah, yeah. So, go on, go on, Jules. No, I was just going to say, Emily, in an article that you've written for us, you you, you described it as a think-in, this topics together, that, that inviting the parents in for a think-in to have this knowledge exchange. And I, and I just thought some of the way that we that we frame things and that we phrase things are so important aren't they and I just thought that was such a great way of describing it as a you know let's have a thinking let's all be together you know in this together um, as well as Jack is saying when I'm reflecting on my own practice in the past um, that kind of thing um, that kind of language would have been great to have had at the end of my fingertips basically. Mm -hmm. I I, the language choice is so important isn't it I mm -hmm. suppose and I was just going to say, I think also just in terms of what, you know, you guys were talking earlier about the Eurocentric curriculum and something like Topics Together also invites a space to really broaden the idea of what constitutes knowledge and um, different people to bring in different ideas. And we've seen that, I think, as well, haven't we, Latifa, with um, having parents' involvement in the topics? Yeah. So there might be a little bit of crossover between this question and the last question, but um, communication, I suppose, 
more generally with families there can be a lot of barriers to that kind of thing what are the different ways that you've seen staff um, use that have really worked to kind of aid the communication flow yeah so I mean I think like you know we've talked a bit about language barriers being a huge barrier for parents to engagement and I think being really this is going to sound really simple but being being mindful of this and 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 aware of it and 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 careful not to end up patronizing or seeming like you're judging a parent who might for example be less engaged because of the language barrier so just that starting from a point of being really really mindful of like how powerful a language barrier can can be um and then in terms of things that schools can put in place we you know obviously having bilingual staff that speak the the languages that are spoken in in the communities um, that you serve as a school is is really important but if staff if schools don't have that then you can have um, interpreters that short-term interpreters are great but then you also again it's not you have this issue of trust being you know really vital here so in consistency so it's thinking about that like what can you have as kind of longer term how can you sort of have longer term multilingual support um, and then something that Latifa and I work on with schools a lot is um, kind of communicating in accessible ways. So with simple text and graphics rather than you often see long letters written out to parents, posted out or long emails. Um, and again, that's going to be really difficult for parents who, who don't have um, a high level of English. Um, and so this kind of, and we've done this, we've sort of, may work with schools to make resources on around different topics like e-safety um one around preparing kids for for reception and we translate those into different languages and again but the a real emphasis there is on the sort of simplicity of the text the graphics and and of the and of the message um, and then a final thing which latifa mentioned a bit before which i think is worth mentioning is having numerous channels for communication with parents because if you just say the, the route is front office, for example, we've seen, you know, we speak to lots of parents across lots of different schools and um, in and often the front office, not always, but can be um, intimidating. We Parents might feel judged by the front office um, or by, you know, whatever, if there's one staff person that is the person you go through, whoever it is, it, you know, if there are any issues there, that's going to then um, be a barrier. And like Latifa said, it can also lead to, to gatekeeping. And so it's really important for there to be lots of different routes, but also for those staff, say, and I'm not going at the front office here, it's just an example, but for those staff to have continual anti-racist training, because it's relevant, it's not just relevant to teachers in the classrooms, it's relevant to everybody um, working in the school. And then in terms of communicating with families, I would just add actually something else is thinking about what, how, what are your systems for feedback how to what how can parents feed back to schools about their experiences and particularly again if we're talking about racism as an example it's obviously going to be it's really um difficult to to come forward and to talk about those harmful experiences you might have had so how can parents do that um in a way that they feel safe and and it, i think it's about schools thinking do you know would parents really feel comfortable coming forward about any prejudices or discrimination that they might have experienced so is that like having a feedback box in school that's anonymous um i don't know latifa have you got anything you want to add i think that's that's pretty comprehensive <laughs> <laughs> i think there was 
there was one thing I wondered could I mention um, because I, I would love to kind of bring it in, which is about prevent. And I feel that like it's slightly relevant to this question because like Emily was saying, when we're thinking about um, in talking about anti-racism in terms of communicating with, with families, um, the fact that I suppose when a process of communication is happening between schools and communities, just any any staff member at school being mindful, like Emily was saying, of basically all the different structural kind of inequalities that would exist there and of and having and being aware that they need to be applying an anti-racist lens. And I think um you know we we do a lot of work at Maslaha around prevent um and you know we see it as having been a really um you know a really harmful kind of as having you know really created a lot of harm in terms of the prospects for trust between schools and families um you know it was only i think last month and there was a four-year-old boy who was referred to prevent because it made a reference to the Fortnite game um which is a really popular yeah game um and basically um you know in the kind of some of the uh media discourse around that the, you know the, the little boy's mum had said she felt she really felt that he wouldn't have been referred if he wasn't muslim um there's the you know statistics show i think between 2016 and 2019 and um, 623 kids under the age of six were referred which is terrifying um, and around 1500 between the ages of six to nine um, and you know considering that actually parents will be feeling scared parents will parents will know that they are unfortunately because of prevent being seen under a veil of suspicion um, and we see kind of narratives around prevent um, these days considering that prevent became a statutory duty in 2015 and um, but we see a lot of kind of narratives where it's like oh prevent is about safeguarding prevent is about safeguarding or prevent is for everyone it's for you know far right it's for you know different kinds of extremism but remembering that you know prevent really did emerge out of a very kind of islamophobic sentiment um, and that and it actually it kind of when it when prevent was made a statutory statutory duty in 2015 it came off the back of the trojan horse affair which was you know which was you know you'll you'll remember it was a, a kind of a long drawn conspiracy um that, that that happened in birmingham where schools were accused of having a an islamifying agenda and it went for two years it was you know a massive kind of media furore that had really long-term repercussions for Muslim communities and um, Islamophobia and racism in the UK. It has a long legacy, you know, the legacy it's left is still felt. Um, and after two years, it was proved that actually there was none, none of the um, accusations were founded. The teachers, the, the, um, the cases were dropped against the teachers, but the impact of that lives on. And Prevent was one of the impacts of that. You know, Prevent, Michael Gove um, brought in fundamental British values as a result of the Trojan horse affair. It, uh, not He didn't bring them in then, but it, it was made a duty to promote um, British values as opposed to having them, which you'll both know well. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that was that's intimately tied to prevent. And even though prevent, yes, can have a wider application, it was created out of um, uh, kind of in, in a sense of profiling Muslim communities um, and out of a real um, a sentiment of Muslims not integrating Muslims as risk, Muslims as a terrorist threat, um, and that 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 has been that has had a massive impact. Um, and then you know the other the other thing just to mention is when we talk about um, you know parents being you know fears and worries, like Emily was mentioning at the start. You know another another thing that cropped up in the last few years was the schools ABC. Um, census where it emerged that 
that data that was being collected from schools as part of the school census was basically um, around nationality, was being fed to the Home Office as part of the, um, the hostile environment um, policies. And that ran for two years. And then because of um, really concerted uh, campaigning by a whole range of organisations, including schools, ABC, um, that was stopped, thankfully. But actually, the, the data that was collected in those two years, people are still being encouraged to retract any data that was that was put into the census in those two years around nationality because of that reason. But if you if you even step back and think about what that might mean for a parent, you know, how would you feel if you know that there is surveillance happening at school, if you know that you're um that that the that there is a connection with the, you know, whether it's a home office or whether it's been feeling, you know, knowing that you're at risk, your child is at disproportionate risk of being referred. All of those things play into the prospects of a parent feeling like they can walk into somewhere and feel safe. Um, and feel like they'll that they have they they can they can speak honestly and I think that's something that we really I suppose yeah it really brings brings back the element of anti-racism being so important to having any of those conversations and yeah absolutely and it and it's so it's so key with prevent isn't it as you said Latifa because it is statutory and and that and it's so it, it's so set up against the trust element that we've been talking about throughout this this whole podcast um and that's very worrying i can totally you know i can i can see why this work that you're doing is so important to support schools to to build that trust up when there are these other barriers um in existence that that they also have to do because it's statutory yeah um our, our next question is around benefits. So what are the benefits that schools have seen in supporting family engagement and community engagement in their schools? And I'm thinking to children, families and staff there. Um, Emily, this was me. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just a few, you know, a few quick things. But I mean, we have seen we've seen impacts, uh, positive benefits across the spectrum, which is really amazing in terms of children and parents and staff, like you've said. Um, I've got a quote here from a, from a teacher who we worked with, um, and she said, we're always so bogged down that getting families in can be seen as a burden, but we realize if we don't get that right, then everything else is harder. Kids are more likely to do homework, parents are more likely to come in, and then she added that parents who have closer links um, to school know a lot better how to support their children in learning. Um, and we've had, yeah, we've had kind of countless, we've had a lot of feedback from teachers actually kind of basically reflecting on the fact that with really limited resources and capacity, how how difficult it is to find the time and you know from an outside position I'm always feel so admiring of not really understanding how teachers do it to be honest. Um, but basically this reflection actually while it may be more work in the short term that that kind of pays off in terms of the engagement and the, what what then that that essentially that the effort of bringing parents in and understanding how to make that possible really really has so many positive impacts for the whole school community um, and that's something that we we hear a lot from teachers um, and in terms of of families you know a lot of the parents we've worked with have talked about the, the positive impact it's had on them personally as people feeling more confident feeling like they've, they've maybe they feel more part of the school community they've made friends and they've had the opportunity to to themselves whether it's 
gain new skills or share and feel a sense of kind of accomplishment because of that um all of those kind of yeah we we have a lot of positive feedback from families and then similarly with children i suppose just that sense like you were saying jules when when both of you were saying when when um when when parents are involved how we've seen in so many occasions how just it really it really creates a, an increased engagement from with children it's a sense of you know a real sense of pride and and um you know, in a couple of the projects that we did with families, there was a few children who had been, you know, teachers had been maybe finding difficult to engage. Um, but having having the combination of the learning being really um, the kind of engagement with their local context and home life and their parents being present had a really positive impact. Um, and, you know, a couple of the teachers were saying, oh, you know, so-and-so was kind of unrecognisable to how he was at the start of the year because this process has been so, um, yeah, it just brought a totally different side out of the child. And I think it's, you know, what you were saying earlier, Jack, about that sense of bringing, the, um, bringing home life and school closer together. And yeah, we've seen so many positive impacts, positive benefits because of that. I think the list just goes on and on, isn't it? Attendance is, was always a big one for me. I think you can, you always see a positive correlation between um, parental engagement and attendance, better attendance. I think that's, it's, that's one that's really obvious the first first when you see it. But yeah, definitely I can attest to that. Um, the the teacher feedback, I, you feel you feel so much more supported, I think, in your role when you've got those parents who are ever present and always interested and eager you just feel because it can you know it can, it can be very it can be a very sort of daunting job at times you know and you can feel quite lost when you've got all these children um but when you have the parents in the in your corner it, it makes a huge difference i think um this is our last question uh just what are your hopes for the future for schools with roots project um yeah, I don't know, Latifa, you might want to add into this as well, but I think, you know, a big thing, if we're sort of thinking sort of aspirationally, I think for us, it's that this anti-racist training is embedded in, in the kind of UK education system, because in a way, like all this stuff that we're talking about, um, with engaging with parents and carers and families, communities, can't happen unless, um, on a bigger scale, if you like, unless, unless that happens. And that's obviously just part of a bigger national conversation that needs to be had about the way you know recognizing the ways in which racism is so embedded in in uk society and in uk institutions and in the education system and the way that white people like myself benefit from that and if we can't have we need to that's you know it's always really part of that and so i think if we could you know i, I would imagine for, you know a, 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 a world where we had the anti-racist training happened with teachers from the beginning so it, for example we've done some training with um university of east london training teachers we've run some workshops with them but if that was happening when people did their pgce um and then as i say it wouldn't then stop there it would be from the the minute you become a teacher or you start training to be a teacher it's part of your practice and then that training is is ongoing and it's there but it's there at a sort of institutional it's, it's embedded in the system um and, and i think then you know that would be amazing <laughs> thank you so much that's been such a fantastic conversation such an important conversation to have um i know jack and i said before before we came on the zoom call about how much it had made us reflect on our on our own practice before and how important that is for us to do that um as we have conversations with 
everybody else as we as we both move forward in our roles now um so thank you thank you so so much for joining us it's been thank fantastic. you thank you guys thank yeah. you so much for having us and we'd yeah. love to, i look forward to hopefully linking up again and yeah continuing conversation yeah, yeah definitely. Absolutely.